Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and thank you that your spirit is here to give us ears to hear what you want to say to us. And now may, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You can be seated. So I want us to reflect on uh, Jesus' teaching about forgiveness in Matthew 18 this morning. Take some time to understand what this parable is saying and apply it to our lives this morning with the Lord's help. Um, Even those who are not Christians, the secular world recognizes the value of forgiveness and that it is good for us to forgive. So, on the website, uh, Psychology Today, there's an article about forgiveness, and it says that uh, forgiveness has been shown to elevate mood, enhance optimism, guard us against stress, anxiety, and depression. So, uh, Psychology Today is saying that forgiveness is good for our mental health. There is therapeutic value to forgiveness, and that is certainly true. But in our teaching from Jesus, he talks about the necessity of forgiveness for our spiritual well-being, reflects our relationship and our understanding of God. Those who have been forgiven by God, those whose hearts have been changed by God's mercy uh, are willing to forgive others. And so in this, in this parable, we see the motive uh, for Christian forgiveness, the motive for Christian forgiveness, and that is the mercy of God represented by this merciful king. God has forgiven us so much, so we ought to forgive Others is the simple point. Uh, This servant who is brought before the king owed the king 10,000 talents, verse 24 says. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And if you look at a study Bible, sometimes they'll tell you what the equivalent of this might be today. The ESV study Bible says this is like, today would be like owing somebody $6 billion. Somewhere in that neighborhood of $6 billion. We don't know why this servant owed the king so much of this money. Maybe he was in a position of power and he was to collect the taxes for the king and he stole all this money or embezzled it somehow. We don't know. That's not really the point. But the point is, he owes a debt he can never pay. He doesn't have the resources to pay this off. Um, I did my own math in my study this week, which is always dangerous. Math and numbers, we don't get along. But I, I figured out, this is going to be in the ballpark, that it would take this guy some something like, 2,285 lifetimes to be able to pay back a debt like this that he owed the king. And so there's no way that he could pay this extraordinary debt, but the extraordinary debt is met with extraordinary mercy. As the king says, 
this man is going to be sold to pay off the debt. Not only is he going to be sold to pay off the debt, his wife and his children as well, they're going to be sold. Imagine hearing that. Not only you, but your wife and your children and everything you have is gone until you start chipping away at this debt. And uh, immediately the servant falls on his knees and implores him. And the image here that you need to have is not just falling on, on the knees, but this, this image of, of bowing down to the ground, imploring, praying for mercy here. Imploring the king, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. Well, that's impossible. He really doesn't understand, it seems, the gravity of his situation. But he is pleading the mercy of the king because of this great debt that he owes. And then we see the great mercy of the king. It says that out of pity for him or out of compassion, the master of that servant released him and forgave him of that debt. So not only are you... Are you free to go. I'm not going to sell you into slavery. I'm not going to sell your family. Not only are you free to go, not only are you free from that, but you are forgiven. You are forgiven of this $6 billion IOU. Completely wiped away. And, and obviously what, what Jesus is doing here is he's giving us a picture of our sin as it relates to God and God's forgiveness as it relates to us. That, that our sin is like a debt that we could, we could never pay. And you know, when you are in debt to somebody, let's say you're in debt to a, a friend and you borrowed a significant amount of money from a friend. The longer you don't pay off that debt, what happens? Well, it could get bigger, yeah. And not only that, there's going to be tension in the relationship. That tension is, is probably going to grow. Unless the, unless the friend comes to you and says, don't worry about it. You know, I'm going to just release you of that. But if the friend doesn't do that, and again, it's a significant amount of money, the longer that goes on, if you're the one that owes the friend that debt, there's going to be tension there in that relationship towards that person. You're going to kind of maybe want to avoid them. And the person that is owed the debt might start to get some anger and hostility. So, relationally, the relationship begins to get tense and it can break down. And then think about this. If, if you owe the government significant amounts of debt, you owe them taxes, and you... Try to evade that. Well, then you're in legal problems. Then if, you, if, if the law catches up to you, you could go to jail. So this debt, debt has relational implications. There's distance created by it relationally. There's divisions. Our sin separates us from God. There's legal problems. Justice must be done. The debt must be paid. That's what our sin is like towards God. And, and so our sin is not just, one way of thinking about sin is that it's a trespass, it's a violation of God's law. But another way to think about sin is it's 
an obligation or a debt that we have not fulfilled, that we have not paid. Because there are things that we should not have done that we did. We should not. There are things that we should be doing that we're not doing. There are things that we're going to do that we should not do with our past, with our present, with our future, with the things that we have done, and as the prayer book says, the things we've left undone, we're in debt to God. We've not fulfilled our obligation to God. And so what is our recourse? Only to do what this servant did. To go before our king and plead his mercy and compassion, and we will find him mercy, merciful and compassionate. Our God is merciful and compassionate. And he has paid off this sin. He has forgiven those who come to him in humble repentance and faith and plead his mercy. He delights to show mercy. He forgives us of our sins. And we remember that the one who is teaching this parable just shortly after this will go to the cross and he will pay the debt at the cross for our sins. Jesus, the perfect God-man, his life of infinite value because he's the perfect God-man, made the perfect sacrifice, lived the perfect life in our place, rose again to eternal life so that our debt could be wiped away. Those who have faith in Him, who are united to Him by faith. In fact, Paul says in uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, And you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. Listen to this. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. God's moral law has been broken. We are the lawbreakers. Something has to be done to satisfy God's own sense of justice, or He would not be just. He would not be holy. That happened at the cross. God canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Debt forgiven. Debt wiped away. Jesus' sacrifice, the sacrifice that pays the penalty for all the sin of the world. Friend, I I hope that you do not think like this servant who is not only unmerciful but foolish when he said to the king, I'll pay you back this six million dollar debt. We cannot pay God the debt we owe. We're to come and beg his mercy and look to the cross of Christ where it's been paid. And I hope every single one of us have done that. That we will not live this life, we will not leave this life, I should say, until that has been settled. Because as Paul says, one day we're going to stand before this king.
as our judge. And our hope then, our only hope then, will be the merits of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for our sin. And that is good news because we're not under this crushing burden to pay it off ourselves because we can't. We can't. So the motive to to extend forgiveness to others is that we have experienced this forgiveness. And and we need this strong motive, this God-centered motive, not just the therapeutic that I referred to earlier, not just it's going to make me feel better, although that can happen. But as Tim Keller says in one of his writings on, on this topic of forgiveness, he says sometimes it feels really good to hold a grudge. Sometimes it can feel good, at least for a season, to hope that my enemy falls on his or her face and to not wish them the best and not to release the anger. It can feel good. It can feel I'm justified in this because of the wrong and the hurt to hold this against them. And so Keller says we need something stronger than just how it makes us feel. We need the gospel to penetrate our hearts and minds of what God has forgiven us. That will change us. Well, this, this servant was unmerciful because he had not been changed. He had not, his heart had not been changed by the mercy that he had received. Um, an unforgiving heart demonstrates a heart that has not been changed by the mercy of God or that has grown cold towards the mercy of God or needs to be reminded of the mercy of God in Christ. Needs to be softened by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. That's what this merciful servant needed. But but he didn't receive it. He did not. His heart was not changed. It's evident, right, in how he treated somebody who owed him debt. Verse 28. So we've seen a picture of a merciful king. Now we're seeing a picture of an unmerciful servant. And when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now that, uh, that's not an insignificant amount of money because a denarii was a day's wage for a common laborer. So that's a hundred days worth of payment. That's not insignificant. But when you compare it to what he owed the king, what he had just been forgiven of, uh, it's, it's like the ESV study Bible says it's an equivalent of about $12,000. He's been forgiven $6 billion, And now he finds somebody who owes him 12000 And he begins to seize him and choke him and say, you better pay me what you Oh, pay me what you owe. And so his fellow servant did exactly what he had just done. There's the parallel here. This is being structured in a, in a, in a way that the reader can see that he's, he's not being treated. He's not treating somebody like he has just been treated. He, he, this servant that owes him the debt does exactly what he had just done. He falls down and he pleads for mercy. 
he says the same thing, basically, that this man had just said to the king, this man who'd been forgiven. He, he, he does the same thing. He says the same thing. Have patience with me. I will repay you. But instead of giving him what he just got, mercy, he demands what is owed him, justice. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And so, even though he had heard the words from the king, you're free, he was not free. His heart was not free of anger and vengeance. He choked choked this man out of rage. Maybe he thought somehow by getting a little bit of this money, this $12,000, that he could pay off the king. We're not told the motive here, but his heart had not been changed by the word of forgiveness, the word of mercy. And so, um, then Jesus wraps this parable up with uh, the, these sobering words. Well, the, the, the unmerciful servant is brought before the king. And he says, you wicked servant, verse 32, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? That's the point. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Which means he's not going to ever get out of the jail because he can't pay that amount of debt. And Jesus says these sobering words. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And Some people have a hard time putting these two images of the king together. You have the compassionate king and then you have this angry king. This king who's demanding justice to be done. How does that, how does that go together? Well, the fact is, is that uh, as one commentator said... Um, Because God is compassionate, he demands compassion from his children. Because he is just, he demands justice. And and he delights to show mercy and compassion towards his children. But those who are truly his children will be merciful and compassionate because they have received the mercy and compassion of God. So this is not teaching that we can merit God's favor and forgiveness by forgiving others. It's more a forgiving heart reflects an understanding. A forgiving heart reflects a changed heart that understands how much he or she has been forgiven. Now, that's the point of the parable. Um, The point is rather simple, but following this and applying it is not. The meaning is simple, but what it means for you and me today in our everyday life, that can get very tricky. That can get very complicated. Um, So let me just give you, in, in conclusion here, some things to think about in terms of how to apply this. First of all, we need to think about what forgiveness is. So we need to be at, we need to to know what Jesus is asking us to do here. 
Let me give you a definition of forgiveness that I think is very helpful. This is from a Christian counselor. He says, you know, forgiveness is canceling a debt. Now, we see that in this parable, canceling a debt. Now, here's how he defines it. Forgiveness means a loan of trust was given, which allowed us to be hurt. Forgiveness means a loan of trust has been given. We've loaned out our trust to somebody in in a relationship, and that has allowed us to be hurt. Whether we choose to extend another loan of trust after we have forgiven is another matter. So there's a two-step process, you might say, here. There's the forgiveness of the heart. That lets go, that lets go of vengeance and hatred towards somebody who's hurt us. Some, uh, writers talk about that as dispositional forgiveness. Like my disposition towards this person, by the mercy of God, is changed. So that I, by the help of God, I'm not going to see them as somebody who I hate and I'm going to take vengeance on. My disposition has changed. Forgiveness in the heart. But then there's, a, there's another step, and, and an ideal set of circumstances is what's called transactional forgiveness. That is reconciliation. And, and this person who was once my enemy now becomes my friend. That takes a restoration of trust in some circumstances, especially when trust has been violated so deeply. And that's not always possible, is what I'm getting at here. It's not always possible. Sometimes the person who has offended us is deceased. Sometimes the person who's offended us is unrepentant and resist admitting their wrongdoing. Sometimes it's, oftentimes, it's messy and it takes time. And and so... What forgiveness means is I'm canceling this debt in the sense that I'm not going to hold anger and hatred towards this person who has hurt me. In fact, Jesus says that we are to pray for our enemies. So one way to practice this, especially in a case where the reconciliation isn't possible or probable, or that's going to take a a lengthy process to, to gain back some trust, this is a wisdom call here. One way to practice this, and and I was convicted of it this week as I was thinking about this, and some people who offended me, and some people, I can't say that I hate them, but I don't get the warm and fuzzy feelings when I think about them. Nobody here, by the way. (laughs) But people in my past. is is One way I I put this into practice this week was, was just to pray for those people that God would bless them. That God would, would lead them to repentance. That God would pour out His spiritual blessing upon them and their family and their health and just pray for God's goodness. Why? Because I've got goodness from God that I don't deserve. So that, that's one way to practice this. This disposition in the heart of forgiveness. Ideally, yes, we move towards reconciliation. Not always possible. Another way, again, I'm just kind of throwing out some things to think about because it's complicated to apply this in messy situations. Uh, There's there's somebody who 
talk to me about when his wife cheated on him with a colleague. She never admitted her sin. Obviously, it destroyed the marriage. And it was such a heartbreak for all involved, but especially him, because he did want to reconcile. So what did he do? He made it a spiritual practice, a habit every day for a season to go before the Lord with two clenched fists. One fist represented his wife. One fist represented the man who was his colleague and friend who cheated with his wife. He brought this before the Lord in prayer. And then he would release, open his palm, and he was saying, I release my wife to you, Lord. I release this man to you. I give them into your hands. I'm not going to take vengeance. Vengeance is yours. And I release anger and hatred towards them. That was a spiritual practice that he did for a lengthy period of time and he began to get healing and freedom. One other thing I want to point out, one other practice or experience that I think is important for us to hear in our church uh, because as Anglicans, we're connected to the global church. And as ACNA Anglicans, we're particularly cl- connected to Rwanda. And our diocese is connected to Rwanda. And we have a priest in our community, Ernest, who is from Rwanda, Ernest and Claire. And they were there during the genocide in 1994. And so I reached out to Ernest. I said, what have you learned about forgiveness? And he, he wrote me back an, an email, and I'm not going to share everything. Let me just remind you of the context of what was going on in Rwanda in 1994 as the world turned its back. 800,000 people were killed in 100 days. That is, I read, five times the rate of what happened in the Nazi death camps. And Ernest and Claire were there for a season. And they obviously saw a great deal of suffering. They suffered. Their family suffered before and after the genocide. It's not my place to talk about in detail the sufferings that they went through. But you can just imagine it was a time of moral chaos, evil, and lawlessness. Things were done with impunity. And here's what Ernest said about what he's learned about forgiveness. Um, He says, forgiveness has become, forgiveness and prayer, which he linked together continually in this testimony, forgiveness and prayer have become my lifestyle and the foundation of my family's values, the foundation of our values. Forgiveness. He said, forgiveness is to change how we see, treat, and interact with our past enemy. I believe that our ultimate, our real enemy is Satan. Our real enemy is Satan. So he's reframing here who the real enemy is. 
We wrestle not against flesh and blood, Paul says. And he says that we need to fight against our enemy on the one hand and pray for those who've been used by him on the other. People are in bondage to this evil one. He said, God asked me to forgive those who trespassed against us because I'm also forgiven. I forgave myself, the robbers, the killers. Why? The motive. God forgave me my trespasses. God asked me to forgive. Again, how this gets applied is oftentimes difficult and messy depending on the circumstance. If you need to process that with somebody and pray with somebody, that's what we're here for. That's what I'm here for. Father Luke is here for. Deacon Sarah. Deacon Nancy. We, we want to help people find this freedom to forgive. We're going to hear the words of Christ this morning. This is my blood that was shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of your sin. He forgave us. He did that. He paid the penalty so we can be forgiven and we can forgive others. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for paying a debt we could never pay. We have oftentimes little sensitivity to the way in which we have sinned against you and the way that that is an offense and the way that that puts us in great debt. God, we have oftentimes little sensitivity to the own spiritual peril that our sin causes. But you do not take sin lightly. But because you're a God of great mercy and compassion, you paid this price of the precious blood of your Son, Jesus. So with that truth, lodged in our hearts and minds, remembered, reflected upon. Help us, God, to release others. We pray for the wisdom of your Spirit to know what that looks like. We know that it means forgiveness in our hearts. But we pray for wisdom with regard to what that might look like relationally in some very difficult situations. We trust you, Spirit, to lead us. Lord, you are the only perfect forgiver. We can't do this perfectly. We're covered by your blood even as we try to pursue this. And we thank you for that. Thank you for your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.